Well, as we turn to Romans chapter 15, uh, this morning we're looking at the Apostle Paul's heart. And uh, today we're going to uh, be looking at the boldness of his heart as well as his, uh, his glorifying heart. And I just want to read for us out of uh, Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified in the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Erconium, or Ericum, <laughs> Illyricum, I have fulfilled my ministry, I can never say that word, of ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I will make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This morning, I want to speak to you about Paul's bold heart. Uh, remember, when we got to this portion of Romans, he had gone through all the theology of justification by faith, by, by faith and grace alone, all that, and who we are in Christ. And now he is dealing with, uh, just got done speaking on his in his letter here to the uh, Romans about the unity of the church. And there were some real potential divisions in the church at that time. And last, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Paul's unifying heart in verses 7 to 13. And last week, we looked at his satisfied heart. And uh, we stressed three things that Paul mentioned that he's satisfied with the Romans about. Uh, first of all, that they were full of goodness. And we talked a little bit about that because Romans also says, Paul also wrote earlier that there's no one who does good. There's no one good among you. So how are you full of goodness? Well, it's only through the transformation of Christ, amen, that we have any goodness at all. And uh, so he, he wanted us to make sure that as believers we understand our position in Christ, that we are full of goodness. And then also he was satisfied with them because he, he said that they were filled with all knowledge. That doesn't mean they're omniscient by any means. It's not talking about that, but it's talking about a uh, knowledge, not in an um, academic sense, but more a practical understanding of their Christian faith. And they were wholesome and uh, sound and helpful in their conduct. 
And then also, thirdly, he said that you are able to instruct one another. And that, we talked a little bit about how that comes out of the other two, right? If you're full of goodness and you've, you're filled with all knowledge, and this is all through Christ, by the way, then you're able to ex, uh, instruct one another. And Paul used that word there, able, which comes from the Greek word that means power, dunamis. And it's just a, a pretty powerful way that we are able because we are empowered by God. Anyone who teaches on behalf of Christ to any degree, whether it's in the nursery or the Sunday school or out on the street or in a pulpit, they're only able to do that through the power of Christ. It doesn't come from themselves. And uh, he talked there about admonishing or instructing one another. It has the idea of encouraging a brother or sister in the Lord, warning, advising. And we talked at the end of the the message last week that really it has the idea of counseling. You're coming along someone and you're sharing biblical truth with them so that they can transform, have their life transformed by that truth and come into kind of mesh with the gospel, with the truth of what the word of God says. And so many times, that's we all need counseling at times. We all need issues. We all have issues. We all have some kind of baggage. Um, and that's why Paul said to Timothy, all Scripture, right, is inspired by God. It's profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so our hope is not in some counselor guru or something like that, as biblical counseling, we believe that the scriptures are sufficient to meet our needs. And uh, that's not to say, on occasion, people have medical issues and they need some medication. That's fine. That's, that's up to the doctors. But as Christians, as pastors, as elders, we're dealing with the spiritual aspect of people's lives. And so we want to make sure that when we deal with the spiritual aspect of people's lives, that we use Spiritual power, and the spiritual power comes from a what? It comes from the Word of God. And so if you were to come to any one of us for counseling and said, hey, I got this issue, Um, how do I deal with it? We would probably take you to a portion of the Word of God and say, well, here's what the Word of God says about that issue, whatever it might be. And uh, hopefully that will encourage you along your way. Well, today we come to Paul's bold heart his bold heart. Notice what he says here in verse uh, 15. He says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. And he's reminding them here that, you know what, I've had to say some pretty hard things to you. Now, remember, As we already said, the book of Romans contains no rebukes of these people. It contains no reprimands. He wasn't writing them like he he does the Corinthian church and say, oh, you're doing this wrong. You're messing up here. You're messing up there. What are you doing? Get your life straight. He doesn't say that here. But he does encourage them in a a variety of, of places. He admonishes them. And he's done that over and over throughout the book. And he's done it rather boldly. Uh, Paul was, if anything, he was a very bold and courageous individual. Would you agree with me? I mean, just when you read about him. I mean, it's amazing. In Acts chapter 9, Luke talks about when they were at Damascus, how Paul had spoken out boldly in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus. And he did the same thing in the cities of Galatia. 
He did the same thing in the synagogue of Ephesus. It says that he reasoned with them, persuading them about the kingdom of God. And that's really an example for us as believers. As we leave these four walls and we go out into this lost and dying world that's full of sin, we're not to take the gospel and hold it close to our chest and say, I hope nobody finds out I'm a Christian because I know that I'll probably be under some kind of persecution. No, we should go out of these four walls and proclaim the gospel boldly and, and not be... Uh, afraid to do so because it's in the proclamation of God's word of the gospel. That's where the power lies. It doesn't lie in a track. It doesn't lie in a, a little booklet. Those are good. Those are good tools to use. But here they actually proclaimed the word of God. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11 to uh, 13, just to give you a little bit of his boldness, just as a reminder, as we come to the end of the book here, he admonishes these believers in Rome. He says this, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And then he uses very forceful language. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But, what's he say? Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness of God. And then down in chapter 8, verse 9, he says, you are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. These are all reminders for the the Roman Christians. If indeed the spirit of God dwells within you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. What's Paul saying? He's saying it's going to be evident. Your faith is going to be evident to people. You're not going to have to even tell them you're a Christian. They're going to know. They're going to see something different in you. And he even cautioned the Gentiles in the church about being prideful because now that they are accepted into God's covenant, because before it was just a Jewish deal, remember? And then in Christ, there's no Jew nor Gentile. So in, in the church, we're all called to be unified in the body of Christ. And so he even warns the Gentiles in chapter 11, verse 24 and 25. He says, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches, speaking of who? Jews, Israel, be grafted into their own olive tree. And then he says this, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this ministry, mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. In other words, he's saying, hey, don't get big-headed about this, just because now you're part of the church, and before you weren't, and you and, and the Jews are on the same level, Jew and Gentile within the, Christ, in the church, don't, don't become prideful about this. That a partial hardening has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. Remember when we went through that, we talked about how God actually used Israel and their disobedience to reach the Gentiles. Because initially God went to the Jews and they wouldn't listen. So then he said, okay, I'm going to break this out and I'm going to go over to the Gentiles. And what happened? When he went to the Gentiles, they, be, they began to get saved. They heard the gospel and they were transformed. And then what happens? And then the Jews looked at the Gentiles and said, hey, wait a minute. That's not fair. So it caused jealousy in the hearts of the Jews. 
And eventually it says that when the fullness of the Gentiles will come, when all the Gentiles that are going to be saved are saved, it says Israel will be saved. They will come back, the Bible says, to their Messiah whom they crucified and repent. And it's speaking there in a general sense when it says all Israel. It's not talking about every individual Jewish person will be saved, clearly. Because you have to be saved the same way we're saved, by faith in the work of Christ. And so he, he warns them in, in chapter 12, verse 3, he says to every believer in the church, not to think more highly of himself than you ought to think. Um, he says, be in subject to the governing authorities whom God established. We went through that in chapter 13. Have a, a due respect for, for all these. And, and when he goes through this, he has, the, the reason he's doing this is because he wasn't condemning them because they're not doing this. He was saying, hey, just word of warning, don't get too comfortable. You're doing a great job living your Christian life, you Roman Christians, and everything's great. I'm not going to condemn you for anything, but I just want to warn you. I just want to remind you what God has called us to be and do. And so there's a tremendous balance, you might say, between the tactfulness of Paul and his boldness. Because we've all, all probably met tactless, bold people. <laughs> you know, the people that have no tact. But they're bold. And they're, quote, bold for the Lord. And that's, that usually doesn't work out too well. We would consider someone like that at times rude. Just in their behavior. Or holier than thou they come across a lot of times. They're so bold with their Christian faith, but they lack the tactfulness that a Christian should have. And here Paul strikes this perfect balance. He, he applies the gospel fully. He applies it forcefully. And he encourages them to follow Christ in every possible way. But he says along the ways, you might also want to consider the weaker Christians... Uh, that you, know, you don't put them out just because they're weak in their faith. You, you encourage them to be part of the body as well. And so he acknowledges. He says, hey, I've been, I've been rather frank with you. I've been rather bold with you. But he doesn't do it as a way of condemning them. He just does it as a way of reminding them what he's already told them. And so it's very important that we, we are remind, reminded when we preach the gospel, when we teach the gospel, when we live the gospel, it should be done in a, in a way that is bold, that people should sense it. I remember hearing from, from one individual, it wasn't in this church, it was in another church, but they were telling me how, yeah, it was so weird. The other day I was talking to somebody in my office and I've worked there for five years. And we started discussing things, and you know what? That person's a Christian. Boy, how weird is that? We've worked alongside each other for five years, and neither one of us ever knew we were Christians. And I thought, well, that's not really something I'd be telling people. That's not a good trait. That's not something that is a good thing to have, that you can be a believer in this lost and dying world and nobody know. You know, God does not call us to be undercover Christians. He doesn't call us to go out there and to blend in with the world. Nor does he call us as churches to call the world into the church so they can blend in with us. And that's really what the modern day church has done. The modern day church has, has blown the doors of the, the church wide open and said, hey, 
everybody come in who's worldly and we're going to make you feel comfortable here. If, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you know, please know we love you. We want to show you the grace of God. Um, we want you to hear the truth. But we're not really interested in you being comfortable other than the chair you're sitting in, okay? We want you to feel conviction. We want you to feel God talking to you about your sin. The sin that could end you up in hell one day if it's not repented of, if you don't turn to the Savior. And are those things uncomfortable to talk about? Definitely. And we can all, as Christians, relate because there was always a time in our Christian life when we were not a Christian. And we can all probably remember that time when we were sitting in that meeting, or maybe it was an evangelistic crusade, or maybe it was a church service, or maybe you were sitting in your car driving down the freeway and you heard a message or you heard something that convicted you to your core. And you knew that God was calling you. And you just had to stop doing whatever you were doing at that time and go forward or, or acknowledge your sin before God. And he saved you. But that was kind of an uncomfortable feeling at first. That kind of conviction doesn't come easy. Well, Paul wasn't willing to kind of rein in his boldness to make people feel comfortable. He was not speaking forcefully to these believers because they were untaught or they were immature. He was, he was talking to them in this way because he knew they could handle it. Because he knew they were spiritually strong. They were well-equipped. He wasn't talking to them like in the, in the Corinthian church where he's talking to them because they're carnal, they're fleshly, they're back and forth in their faith. No, he's talking to them this way because they're uncompromising, they're steadfast in their faith. And so at times we understand what it means to be, uh, you know, we, we all have, the older we get, sometimes uh, the more prevalent these problems become. The problems of becoming familiar with things, forgetfulness, all right? Um, we just become way too comfortable. And we tend to forget some basic things. And if you're a teacher here today, you know how important it is for teachers to remind people, right, what you've already taught them. You have to remind people over and over and over and over again. Because we know that... Eventually, you're going to forget what you've been taught. And so Paul instructed even Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 6. He says that, uh, that his fellow believers would be constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. He said, keep on reminding the brothers, Timothy. Don't give up. You know, and that's why it's so important for us as we teach through books of the Bible or sections of the Bible that we're reminded of certain things. Uh, Danny taught a, a wonderful message. You're going to hear it sometime coming up on a Sunday, but on greed. And he went through the Old Testament and he pulled out just a, a wonderful passage. And it was just a real, real blessing. And so we believe that the boldness doesn't come from us. It's not something we generate, but the boldness comes from God's spirit. It comes from God's word. Uh, and that's the same with the Apostle Paul. In Titus chapter 3, verse 1, he reminds Titus, he says, Be subject to the rulers, to the authorities, to be obedient, and be ready for every good deed. He reminds Titus. 
And he's constantly calling us to remember. Look over at Second Peter. Uh, Ken read some of this this morning. I think he read this. Second Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 12 to 15. He writes there, Therefore I intend always to what? Remind you. Remind you of these qualities. Though you know them, I'm not telling you anything new, and you're established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body, look at the word he uses, to stir you up by way of reminder. I remember when I was little, we used to make uh, chocolate milk. Get a big glass of milk, you know, and you put, put the Hershey's chocolate in there out of the can, you know. And they stir it up. And I remember sometimes it would sit there on the counter before we drink it. And what would happen? All the chocolate settled into the bottom, you know. And you'd what? You have to stir it back up. It's like reactivating that chocolate in the milk. And then you could drink it. Well, that's the idea here is that Paul, what, he, what he's saying here in, in Peter, what he's saying is that he wanted to stir you up by way of reminder, verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. In other words, I'm not going to be here very long. And I need some, to tell you some things. I need to remind you of some things. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So there's some advantage in being bold. There's some advantage in teaching and reminding people. And that's really what the responsibility of any pastor or teacher or Sunday school, whatever, is, is to remind people of the truths that maybe they already know. You're not going to hear anything new. As a matter of fact, if you hear something new, you might, that might be a red flag. I always get worried about, oh, I've, I found this new truth. Well, wait a minute. You know, there's no such thing as new truth. God has given us his word in its, its complete and so we, we find uh, total satisfaction in studying and, and understanding and being bold with the word of God. But look at what he says here. The reason that he says this is because of the grace that was given to him. Because of the grace given to me by God. So he reminds his readers that this isn't some kind of boldness that he just kind of sits down. Okay, I got to be enthusiastic. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about God's saving grace here because of the grace. He's not talking about the grace that saved him. He's really focusing on his divinely appointed apostle, <coughs> apostleship. His mandate and authority to proclaim the word of God. That's what Paul was focusing on. And anybody who is anybody in Christianity, if you're a Christian, you should be involved in serving God to some degree. It doesn't matter what it is. And when you serve him, you realize the only reason I'm serving him is, is why? Because of the grace of God. It's by the grace of God that I'm doing this. He didn't want to impress them with his, you know, oh, look at me, I'm an apostle. No, he's saying I'm an apostle by God's grace. I don't deserve to be an apostle. Um, he wanted that to be made very clearly. In Romans chapter 1, he starts off the whole book. In verses 1 and 5, he say, calls himself a bondservant, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel, 
of God. And then he says in verse 5, he received grace and apostleship. So this was a very gracious act on God calling him to be an apostle. And, and Paul knew that. You know, it wasn't something where Paul was lifting himself up and say, hey, I'm an apostle. You know, bow down to me, kiss my ring. That's not what Paul was doing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he explained to the Corinthian church that he considered himself what? It says the least in verses 9 and 10, the least of the apostles. He didn't feel worthy to be an apostle. He says, I'm not even fit to be called an apostle. And really, when you look at it practically, he had good reason, right? I mean, Saul, before he was Paul, when he was Saul, what did he do? He went around for sport and killed Christians, persecuted them, imprisoned them in the name of his religion. He thought it was his duty. And so I can understand him saying, hey, I'm not worthy of this calling. But we can all say that. In Romans chapter 12, verse 6, he says that it, we need to obey and serve the Lord according to the grace given to us as individual believers. The one thing I want you to hear this morning is that as a believer, if you've trusted Christ and you're saved, you've been transformed by the glorious gospel of Jesus, please understand that God has a purpose for you. He has a plan. He has gifted you uniquely like no other in the body of Christ with your own personality. In your own, your own background, your own, uh, just where you've come from in life, all the things that you've experienced, and now you're saved. Well, God has a plan, and he wants to use all that that's gone on before for his glory, including the gifts that he gives you as a believer. Sometimes it's so frustrating when you run into a believer, and they say, well, I don't know what my gifts are. Like, really? What do you mean you don't know what your gifts are? I mean, th think how weird that is. I mean, it would be like on Christmas Day going down and having five Christmas gifts under the tree. Yeah, I got the gifts. They're great. And you come back in July and the gifts are still sitting there. Maybe not under the tree, but in the corner of the living room. They're not unopened. It's like, are, are you curious what's in those boxes? I mean, are you curious by any, any stretch of the imagination what, what someone has gifted you with? I mean, that would be kind of weird not to open up gifts that were freely given to you. And we do that as believers, I think, sometimes by our ignorance of our own spiritual gifts. And if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, you know, usually you, you more than likely have more than one. Most people have several. And maybe it's a, a specific gift that stands out. But, you know, there are certain tools that can help you. I think the first tool is just get involved in ministry and start doing stuff. And God will show you what your gift are, is. All right? If, if, uh, if you're standing at the door every week and people are coming and you're handing out the bulletins and you're doing it this way, here you go. Get in there, get a seat. That's probably not your gift. <laughs> You're probably not a person that deals well with people. We wouldn't want you serving there. But you may never know that until you try it. Uh, sometimes people are surprised how God gifts them, and they don't even realize they're gifted in certain areas. When I first started in ministry, I was thrown into a situation where basically I arrived as an intern at this church, 
in the morning I arrived that Sunday, the pastor said, here's the, uh, the curriculum. The high school kids are downstairs. See you in two hours. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, and three of the kids were his kids. So I'm like, oh, my goodness. I had no idea. I was terrified. But that whole experience led to 15-plus years in youth ministry. And, you know, it's just amazing. I would have never chosen that. I would have never chosen this. You know, what, what, what God has called me to do now, I just never would have done it. But it's, it's, it's God. You're trusting God. You just step out by faith. And you, it may not be your comfort zone, but you know what? You're willing to obey him and utilize the gifts that God has given you. Well, Paul wanted them to understand, and he boldly proclaimed this to him over and over again. Well, the second one is not in your outline, and I, but I, I, I skipped over it. I guess I left it out. But anyway, it's Paul's ministering heart. So we've seen Paul's unifying heart, his satisfied heart, and his bold heart. Let's look at verse 16 because we see his ministering heart. It says, to be, by the grace God given to me, um, by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So, remember, in the Old Covenant, you would have what? You would have priests. And the priests were kind of the uh, go-between between the people and God. And so they were to go into the Holy Holies, offer sin or offer sacrifices for the, the sins of the people. And they were basically, uh, the, the priests and the prophets were the, the spiritual influence in the nation of Israel. Well, under the new covenant, under Christ, under the church age, who is our high priest? Jesus Christ. Okay. He is perfect and pure. He's the eternal high priest. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. There's no longer any human earthly institution of priesthood like there was under the old covenant. Now, I grew up in the Catholic church, and we had priests. And I remember after I got saved, I asked the priest that question. I said, well, the, the New Testament says that Jesus is our high priest, but not only that, but in First Peter, uh, or in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says there's only one mediator between God and man. Only one. It says the man, Christ Jesus. And I remember showing that to the priest. And their answer was, well, I am representative of Christ. <laughs> I am Christ on earth, you might say. And then I remember my brother saying, well, take him to 1 Peter. So I took him to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. If you just turn over there real quickly, just a little side note on the, the priesthood of believers. Because in the church, guess what? We're all priests. <laughs> you know? You can all wear that little white collar if you want. Um, I wouldn't wear one of those. <laughs> I have a hard enough time with a tie. But uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 4. As you come to him, who Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up 
as a spiritual house. Look at what it says. To be a holy, what? Priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's one of the first songs I ever heard as a Christian, as a Christian song, was Leon Patillo's I Lay in Zion. And I just thought, wow, this is a great song. I didn't even know it was scripture at the time. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But contrast to that is those who are believers. Verse 9, but you are a what? A chosen, what's it say? Race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Even in Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, it says that Christ has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And all the way at the end of Revelation chapter 20 verse 6, it says those who have... uh, partaking the first resurrection believers, um, will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So that is the priesthood of believers. And, you know, I get it. That, that kind of steals their thunder. They don't like to hear that. And I remember telling that priest, well, you know what? The Bible tells me that I'm a priest too. <laughs> you know, boy, he got his feathers really ruffled at that point. And I wasn't trying to be rude with them. I was just pointing out this scripture. And they spiritualize it, and it doesn't mean what it means. But we do not have to go through a human mediator to reach God. Aren't you glad? You know, you don't even have to go to church to reach God. You don't. I mean, this is a building. I mean, it's great. You come. It's great. We're instructed to do it. It's being obedient. It says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So we're, we're being obedient. But you don't have to be in church every Sunday or somehow your relationship with God is broken. That's not how this works. Because there's no human mediator between God and man anymore. Only Christ And we have that fellowship with our Heavenly Father day and night. We have communion constantly. And we actually engage in that priestly role by by bringing others into God's presence through evangelism, through sharing Christ. And so Paul is saying here, you know what? I didn't inherit this priestly office by birth. This isn't like some right that I have. He was a priest in the same way that all Christians are priests in a little larger way, because he went out to lots of places in his missionary journeys. And he typically would begin his ministry in a city or town, and where he would preach, he would preach in the synagogue. He would go to the synagogue, or he would 
preach among the, the informal group of Jews. <clears throat> and he'd be used of God to bring them to bring them to Christ. So this was his special calling. He says here to be a minister. This is his ministering heart. Every believer should have this evidenced in their life. It should interest you to, to be a minister of Christ. You know, it's not just a pastor or elder who's a minister. We're all called ministers. We're all called servants. This word was used of public officials. Paul used it in in uh, Romans chapter 13 to speak of those who are servants of God, those who are in government. But in the New Testament, the word is, is used most often for those who serve God in some form of public ministry. Uh, it's used of the Levitical priest uh, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. It's translated in Luke one twenty three, priestly service there. It's used in a, uh, the same sense of worship ministry in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. It's used of angels ministering on our behalf in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7 and 14. And so it's used in a lot of different ways. But Paul ministered figuratively as a priest of the gospel of God to who? To the Gentiles. He reached out to the Gentiles and they began to get saved. And that's why he says here, he says to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Why did you do this, Paul? For his own glory? No, he says, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. In other words, we all have an offering daily that we're giving to God. We may not even realize it because we don't go to a temple and actually perform the duty of of offering something on a sacrificial altar or something like that. But every day we're called to live in a, a sacrificial way and give our life as an offering to God. And one of the ways that we can do that is when we share the gospel, when we're bold with the gospel and we see people come to Christ. That's really us giving back to God an offering. And he was thankful for all these multitudes of, of Gentiles who came to Christ. And he says, you know what? The only reason that happened, that's why he says there at the end of verse uh, 15, was because of the grace given to me. But at the end of verse 16, he says, it's because they were sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Do you know you're never going to save anybody? You don't have the power to save anybody. I remember... Early on in ministry, I was around certain groups of people that I, I mean, technically they probably didn't believe this, but they sure made you feel like you had the power to save people. You know, you'd have a little rally and you'd get together and you'd go over all the little points you're going to share with people. And, you know, well, if they say this in the conversation, you just counter it with this and, you know, make them pray this prayer at the end. And, and you know, if you just pray this prayer, that somehow they're going to be saved if they pray the sinner's prayer. And so we'd go out to the campus or whatever, and we'd confront college students or whoever it may have been on the boardwalk, wherever, and, and we'd confront them with these tracks that we were trained to use. And, boy, you know, if we can get them into the end, they'd say, well, would you like to pray this prayer? Yeah. Boy, you know, we'd go back after we went out. We'd come back after a couple hours, and we'd all share stories. Oh, yeah, you know, five people got saved, you know. I don't know if they were saved or not. I mean, what, how did I know? Well, they prayed the prayer. 
That was the, that was the, 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 the marker whether they were saved or not, which is really not legitimate. I mean, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible about a sinner's prayer. Nowhere. So we have to be careful when we, we start to do this, when we become bold and we start to minister, that we do not begin to believe that somehow it's by our own power that God is doing this. Because it's not. And this goes to the next point here. Paul's glorifying heart. Paul's glorifying heart. I almost wrote down Paul's prideful heart. But I thought, well, you can take that one of two ways. Because he was proud. In a lot of ways. In a good way. Not in a sinful sense. As we're going to see. But the first thing he says here in verse 16 Or in verse 17, he says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason, look, right there it is, to be proud of my work for God. Sometimes people think that the word pride or proud has always got to be bad. Well, no, it's not. It depends what you're being prideful about. Okay? Um, In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and 8, Paul wrote this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, pride, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Why, Paul? Because I was circumcised the eighth day, the people of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as a law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as lost, what? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's garbage. It's not worth it. In order that I may gain Christ. See, as believers, sometimes we get sucked in by the world. The world wants us to think just the opposite. No, it's worth it. All this stuff that the world's offering, it's worth it. Make that your focus. Make that your dream. And Paul says, you know what? Been there, done that. It's not worth it. And we've all probably read stories of people that have had more money than (laughs) we could ever even imagine. And they say, you know what? My life was empty. It didn't help me in my life. It was only until I came to know Christ. Or in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this in chapter 1. Verse 26 to 31, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. This will give us a little bit of how important Christ is in our life and not us. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many from noble birth. But verse 27, I love this verse. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is law and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, th- to nothing things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ. You became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so as is written... Let the one who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. You know, it's so important that we realize that we're nothing. We're really nothing. Um, And when you hear 
some people talk, you wonder if they really believe that. Because I think they think they just, the, the complete opposite. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he continues in verses 1 to 5, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, did I not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God? I did not do this with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, I didn't come with some kind of high-handed speech that made you all feel, you know, less superior. I don't know about you, but that's one of my pet peeves. You know, I hate talking to people when they, they talk in this lofty language. You know, I mean, to me, I got to keep the cookies on the bottom shelf, you know. But some people, they'll talk to you and they'll use these words and I'm, they probably see I'm puzzled. Well, what that means is this. It's like, okay, well, why don't you just tell me what, you know, why do you have to use the word? Just tell me what it means. Let's get practical here. And so he says, verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. But in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, the last thing you want is someone to come to Christ because of who you are or what you do or, or you know, how well you can speak or how well you can argue the gospel or, or give apologetical information. That's the last thing you want them to come to Christ for. You want them to come to Christ because they're broken over their sin. You want them to come to Christ because they heard the truth of the gospel. And so Paul here, he glories in Jesus and Jesus alone. In verse 18... He says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. What's he doing? He's expressing humility. He didn't take any credit for himself. He didn't say, hey, look at me. I'm the great missionary to the Gentiles. All these Gentiles are coming to Christ because of me. He says, no, you know what? I will only take credit and give all the credit to God for what Christ has done through me. And that's what, that's what the Christian life is all about. We can't believe the lie that somehow we're God's gift to the church and, you know, he's going to cause uh, revival. It's only going to happen through me because I'm the only uniquely gifted person to know. You know, we're all weak. We're all foolish concerning as far as the world looks at us. But Christ saved us and he wants to use us. So we have every reason in the world to be humble in our salvation. Don't ever believe you're responsible for somebody else's salvation. You're responsible to share the gospel. You're responsible, you know, I like to say it this way. We're basically waiters. We take the the food that was prepared and we bring it to the people and we set it before them. And so many times today in the modern day church, they take the food from the kitchen and before they serve it to the people, they just got to tinker with it. They got to change stuff. Well, this doesn't sound good. Oh, you know, we can't use the word sin anymore or hell because that's offensive or this is that. Or can't talk about the blood of Christ or whatever it might be. That might turn people off. And by the time the food gets to the table, it has no semblance of what was put out by the kitchen. And see, that's not our call. Our call is to boldly preach and proclaim God's word fully. And as we do that, there's humility in that. I mean, Paul basically opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 
But he says in Acts chapter 15, verse 12, he says, I only tell you what Christ did through me, nothing more. He says, I take no claim for anything else, only what God has wrought among the Gentiles through them. And he says the same thing in Acts 21, verse 19. He related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. See, there's nothing wrong with understanding that God uses us. I mean, you know, if we didn't have people to be used, we wouldn't have ministry. So don't, don't think that, well, you know, I'm just nobody and, you know, I'm just going to be humble bumble and, and God could never use somebody like me. Yes, he can. That's what the gospel is all about. And when, when God does use us, we stand back and go, wow. We don't stand back and go, wow, look at me. No, we go, wow, how has God done this? It's amazing. And that was Paul's heart. He glorified only in Christ. He took no credit for himself. In 2 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, but, but we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians ten fifteen. we do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. What's he, he's saying? He's saying basically, you know what? Just focus on what God has trusted you to do. You don't have to expand your borders. You don't have to, you know, do all this stuff and, and have a, all these platforms. And I mean, today, you know, I mean, it's, it's great with social media. Some of that's good. But, you know, it, it can become an endless pit. I mean, you're just spending, oh, we got to have a Facebook. We got to have Twitter. We got to have this. We got to have that. You know, and then you get these crazy little comments. You know, oh, you haven't posted anything in a while. People aren't going to, I don't care. I mean, what, what's, the, you know, I mean, I get it. I mean, if you're gifted at that, go for it. But, you know, it becomes something where that's not where my faith is. You know, my faith is in the word of God. My faith is that God will, will reach people through the, the preaching of his word. And that's what Paul's saying. He's, oh, we're going to boast about these other things. We're going to boast what other people are doing. We're going to focus on what God has called us to do. And he says in verses uh, 10, 17 and 18 of 1 Corinthians 10, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. And so he focuses here on his humility. But he also talks about being obedient to the Lord in, in verse 18. He says, I'm not going to venture to speak out of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And he says, by word and deed. By word and deed. He's talking here about faithfulness. I'm not going to jump out of the boundaries from what God has given me to share. I'm not going to go out there and do my own thing, is what Paul's saying. He said, I'm going to stick to the game plan. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. And it was to proclaim the gospel. And he was going to be obedient to that. And that's what we are called to do. We're called to be obedient to the gospel of Christ. And then Paul maintained his personal integrity. You could say he was authentic. Another way of saying that. 
Um, he was not only humble and faithful, but he was authentic, or he was genuine, you might say. That's why he says there at the end of verse 18, bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. In other words, he's going to live what he's preaching. He's going to do what he's calling others to do. And that's never done in a perfect fashion, right? I mean, or nobody would be, <laughs> nobody would be anything. We wouldn't be pastors. We wouldn't be elders. We're whatever. No, nobody's perfect in all those things. But our heart's desire should be one of faithfulness, of being transparent, of being authentic. You know, you never want to get up in front of people and pretend to be something you're not. Because it doesn't take very long to figure that out. Um, I told one pastor at, at, at one conference, I don't know if I heard it from somebody or whatever, but I said the, the only difference between the congregation and myself on a Sunday morning is that we're facing different directions. <laughs> we're all in the same thing. We all deal with the same stuff every day. We don't have a, a kind of a spiritual platform that lifts us up to a next level. We've got to grind it out in the sinful world just like everybody else does. And so in the body of Christ, that's where we're all the same. We're all unified in that. And then you see here this affirmation of his ministry. He says in verse 19, how did this happen? By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. In other words, this wasn't about Paul just being, oh, he's such a gifted man. And No. He was faithful, he was humble, he was transparent, he was authentic. But as a result of that, his, what? his ministry was affirmed. Uh, you could say it was powerful. He had the ability to be used of God because he was, he was willing to be used of God. And so there were certain signs and wonders that went along with Paul's ministry. And God used them to produce conviction in people's hearts. He used them to produce faith. I mean, he, he, he preached this message. And there's a, you know, back then there's probably a lot of people preaching messages. But you know what? God gave him a certain sign and wonder that went along with the message. Just like the other apostles had. Now, today as a church, we believe that these kind of miraculous signs and wonders kind of things, are set aside. And the reason we believe that is because early on in the, in, the, in the beginning of the church, it was needed that they had these signs and wonders because, you know, these were a bunch of fishermen. Who's going to believe them? Well, all of a sudden, you know, they start raising the dead and they start doing things that Jesus did after he left. It's like, wow, these guys got some power. And it authenticated their apostleship. And it was the same with the Apostle Paul. And so they knew that they were from God because of the, the, the expression of these, these miraculous signs and wonders. And now today, I mean, we can, we can say, you know what? Our, our calling is to stay true to the word and hopefully people's lives are transformed. But even in Mark chapter 16, verse 20, it says the apostles went everywhere, preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Remember, they didn't have this. They didn't have, you know, the New Testament. 
All these things needed to be confirmed that they were saying. And how did God do that? He did it through the raising of dead, dead people, the casting out of demons. He did it by miraculous healings. And we're not saying God can't do those things today. But he doesn't necessarily empower certain individuals with the gift of healing or the, the ability to do any of these other miraculous signs and wonders. Because it's not needed. Because we have the word of God. The, the foundation is secure. And it's built upon the prophets and the apostles. Ministry that they've already completed. Well, he closes off here and he says, the last thing here under his glorifying heart is that he worked rigorously in ministry. He says, he did all this by the power of the Spirit so that from Jerusalem and all the way around, I've fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And he says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. That leads to his missionary heart that we'll cover next time. But you can tell by Paul, Paul's schedule here, he was a pretty busy guy in ministry. He wanted to be used of the Lord in every possible way. And that's the way as believers we should feel, feel the same way. You know, some people say, oh, well, you're going to burn out. You know what, if you burn out for Jesus, I think that's okay. I think that's forgiving. <laughs> There's a lot of people in the church age that have burned out for Christ. You look at some of the church Puritans, some of the early people, they, they died long, early in life. Why? Because they were just so focused on serving the Lord at all costs. And I think that many of us have grown comfortable the other way. <laughs> so we need to be asking God to give us the same heart that the apostle Paul is showing us here. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that through Paul's example of his boldness, his passion, his integrity, his authenticity, all these things, Lord, that, that, that we would uh, see a picture of what it means to be used by you in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would just set it upon each heart. Father, we know where we're involved and what we're doing and Lord, we pray that if we're not involved, that, that you would convict our hearts, that you would show us where you desire us to serve the body of Christ. And if there's any here today who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, I pray that today would be the day that they would cry out uh, before a holy God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. This message of the gospel kind of makes sense, but I, I, I don't completely understand it. Lord, please help me with this. Reveal yourself to me in a way that would convict me and draw me to yourself. That's a prayer that God will answer if it's prayed from a sincere heart. Father, we just uh, thank you for our time this morning. We pray that you would just bless our day. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.